0: Our guest needs no introduction. We're really thrilled to have Katie Pavlich back on District of Conservation. Katie, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. You have been traveling the country and in the world, but largely the country, for season two of your Fox Nation series, Luxury Hunting Lodges of America. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some public policy. But talk about how this season has been faring. You just released... The batch of, I think, six episodes. I got to binge watch them. I loved it. It last season was great, but this, I feel like topped, uh, even what you presented last year, all were great, but, uh, kind of give an overview of where you traveled to and and how you think this season compared to last. Well, I'm grateful to hear that you enjoyed it and that you think that we're improving.
1: So, uh, season one was absolutely amazing. Uh, we went to a whole bunch of different places. Um, and season two just came out on Fox nation It's called luxury hunting lodges of America, as you mentioned uh, on July 10th. So recently, and, um, I think really just in terms of the differences, you know, my goal was always to get to these places and obviously we're showcasing the lodges, but uh, also as someone who's grew up hunting and, um, you know, living in the woods and camping and being a conservationist is to show the conservation side of what the lodges are doing and what private industry is doing, um, for the environment and for, uh, you know, the animal populations that we enjoy so much. So, uh, this season we went to Arkansas, South Dakota, uh, Texas twice and to Virginia for some turkey hunting. And it was just so much fun. And what I love is just meeting all the people who are working at these lodges, the owners who are investing their own private money into conservation. You know, just as a reminder from last season, we went out to three forks, uh, ranch in Colorado, Wyoming, and the owner there, David Pratt did the largest private rest, uh, river restoration in the history of the country. And that would have never happened if it weren't for him and his own private efforts. So it's just really interesting to see, um, how everybody is doing their own part without the government telling them what to do to conserve for the next generation. And because they care about, you know, the animals and wildlife that live on their property.
0: The private conservation element certainly doesn't get enough love. And I noticed, especially in these episodes, much like the first season, you showed more attention to that, which I really appreciated. And I loved, and I'll talk more about one of the places you visited on that, but were there any particular activities you did? I, I, saw that you got to do stuff outside of hunting too. Like you got to shoot from a tank, you fed giraffes, <laughs> you fly fish for tarpon. Tarpon fly fishing is extremely hard. I haven't done it. I've, I've chased tarpon before, but I was very proud of you to see you try to fish for that. That's really hard to do. But was there any favorite first time experience you had from this past season, any of the aforementioned? Oh, it's I didn't so mention.
1: hard to choose. I mean, every place is so different, right? I mean, feeding giraffes was so fun and doing it in Texas and not having to fly all the way to Africa, you know, getting to see the rhinos that they have at Ox Ranch and touch them and Learn about them, and to learn about all the different kinds of animals they have on that ranch and their conservation program with taking animals that were once extinct in the wild, and you know, rehabil- rehabilitating their populations—not just for hunting, but to get them back into into the wild uh, in places like Africa was absolutely amazing. Um, you know, there are a lot, of, a few first timers here for me in this season. I went to Arkansas and did duck hunting for the first time. Cause I grew up mostly big game hunting out West. And so I've been getting more into bird hunting thanks to this show. And it was so interesting to see how Stan Jones of Stan Jones Mallard Lodge has been able to buy up these different properties that are next to each other in Arkansas And he also is a rice farmer. So not only is he farming tons of rice uh, in Arkansas, which is one of the biggest rice producers in the world, but that also provides food for the ducks when they're migrating um, from Canada. So that was so interesting to see all the effort and work that's put into that process. And then for the, I think maybe my favorite thing in terms of being a first timer was spearfishing. You mentioned the tarpon fishing. We did tarpon fishing and spearfishing. Tarpon was exciting but very difficult as you said it was also my first time um fly fishing on the ocean when it's windy and if you're not you know if you have you know professional fishermen or people who fish their entire lives who are really good at fly fishing you know getting a tarpon is like the ultimate it's like the olympics right like if you can land one it's a thrill of a lifetime so it wasn't too hard on myself because we only had like a day to go out and try um, but it was definitely thrilling. And it's it was interesting to talk to the guides because they discuss it more like, you know, you're fishing, obviously, but it feels more like hunting because of the way that you go after tarpon. You're not just sitting there with a fishing rod. You're actually like chasing them in a boat and you're watching where they are and trying to find them and getting in front of them and you're stalking them. And so it really is more of a hunting skill set, I would say. And As I learned, you know, when we came back, you know, you say, oh, we didn't get one. But that's not how you speak in Tarpon language. There are four different levels. It's like seeing them is one, like that's an accomplishment. Um, Putting, you know, trying to get one is another level of accomplishment. If you hook one, that's a huge deal. And then if you land one, it's like the ultimate. So there are four different levels to Tarpon success, I would say. And uh, I, I guess I can say that we were successful since we saw a lot of them, but definitely did not hook any or land any. So I guess it's still going to be on my bucket list. But um, spearfishing was really amazing. Also, a lot like hunting. Um, and of course, it was interesting to listen to them talk about you know what, if you get one, you gotta you know get the fish out of the water really quickly because there's lots of sharks in the Keys. Right. And there are. I mean, right before we got in the water, we saw one. So. Um, you know, it's interesting to see how the environment works down there and the predators and the different kind of, um, you know, the water, I just had never been in any situation like that. And the snorkeling along the mangroves and holding on and watching for the right one and making sure you don't shoot the wrong fish, you know, because there's lots of different kinds of fish down there. So you gotta be clear that you're shooting a red snapper, which is what we were going for, or or, a mangrove snapper rather. So I just had such a great time learning new things and learning about all these different environments that I had never really been out in before as a hunter or a fisherwoman.
0: It looked like a lot of fun. I was vicariously living through your experiences because those all look like a blast. And I have chased tarpon on like a regular rod and reel, and that is the hardest fish to catch. So don't feel bad about not getting it on the fly. (laughs) They're extremely difficult and they're natural predators. So it's like, ugh. Yeah, it's, it's a bucket list fish and don't feel deterred. You're going to get one eventually. Well, they're smart and they're also huge. I mean, if yes. you end up hooking one, like the process
1: of getting it in the boat, I mean, some of them end up being more than 100 pounds. Right. So you're you're fighting them on this line to get them in and it can be hours and hours, even mm-hmm. if you hook one before it gets in into the boat. So right. um, definitely a goal for the future. I'm not too disappointed. I feel good about mm-hmm. even trying.
0: <laughs> yeah. I want to caveat it by saying that I, my friends in Florida always remind me anything over 40 inches has to stay in the water actually, but smaller ones, you could totally bring in anything below 40 inches. Cause there have been some controversies about people holding like over 40 inch fish, but uh, no, mm-hmm. outside of that, no, they are super fun to catch. Even losing one wrapping around a pylon is gratifying because you know, Oh my yeah. God, I was wrestling a monster. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> so you, did great. Exactly. you did great with sight fishing. Kudos. Hey. Bravo. It was, it was excellent. Um, more about the ox ranch because i think some people big game hunting of course is controversial in the eyes of people who don't like hunting of course Mm -hmm. and texas has actually become kind of fertile ground i've seen this in different reporting i think it was the dallas morning news like a year or two ago was saying we have to reach a truce to allow for these high fence big game operations because they're actually helping to restore imperiled species that no longer exist in their natural habitats and they're being brought back here in texas and you know, imported back into, exported back to, rather, uh, their home countries. So what mm-hmm. at the Ox Ranch, do they have any partnerships with African nations or conservation groups? What What else did you learn from them in terms of how they're You know what,
1: that's a good question about the partnership with the African nations. I'm not sure if it's a direct partnership with the country or if it's uh, more conservation groups that export to Africa, but... Mm-hmm. They also keep a lot of their own animals on the property just for the sake of having them available for viewing and for conservation purposes there. At Ox Ranch, they have over 60 species of different animals. Many of them are previously from Africa, but none of them are actually from Africa. They've all been um, bred uh, and born in America, mostly in Texas. And one success story is that the Sumitar Oryx, which was the animal we were going after in that episode, um, that... Animal is from Western Africa, up north, so Western Sahara, I'd say, and it went extinct in the wild. But because of the work that Ox Ranch and other Texas ranches have been able to do, they've now regained the population of Scimitar oryx and have reintroduced it back into the wild uh, after it went extinct. And so, in in the wild, and so that's a really interesting. And they still hunt them on the property. So, for example, you know, as you know, we always hear that you can't hunt endangered or extinct animals. Um, but in this case, you know, I went after one that had one broken horn because if they have a broken horn, they actually become dangerous to each other when they fight each other, because it becomes more like a, like a, like a sword rather than a a tool to fight with antler to antler or horn to horn. And so they try to cull the herd from the ones that break off a horn, so they don't end up injuring the younger uh, animals, so then they can't reproduce and continue, you know, to populate that species. So it was really interesting to see them bringing years and years ago animals from Africa uh, and allowing, you know, reproduction on these Texas ranches for the sake of conservation and just as an example of, you know, scientific success that you can do when it comes to allowing these kind of processes to play out and without hunting and hunting ranches, it wouldn't be possible in places like Texas.
0: Yeah. Necessary component to conservation, uh complementing obviously Pittman Robertson for hunting Dingle Johnson for fishing. And they don't get a lot of, let's say accolades in doing so, but I think with their help, in this regard with helping to boost kind of the imperiled species, I think people will come around to them and and appreciate them more. So that that's my hope in, in examining kind of their work too, but it was really great that you highlighted that.
1: Well, and one thing, you know, that people don't quite understand is, you know, hunting is very emotional for them and it's also emotional for me. Like you'll notice in the episode that, uh, I get got very emotional once we finally got our animal because it is an emotional process. But if you don't apply value, I get emotional because there's a value to the animal that I'm taking, right? If you don't apply value to animals, uh, especially in you know in places like Africa where resources are scarce, they become things that are not worth anything and therefore they're not respected. And so I think that's what these Texas ranches have really been able to do is to explain like these animals do have value, which is why we're working so hard to rehabilitate their populations. And they try to export that conservation mindset to Africa, where you allow hunting, you allow conservation in the sense of taking out the animals that could be a danger to the others, right? The one horned cemitar oryx, for example. And therefore, you can then allow the population to thrive. And so um, I think applying value is the most important thing you can do when it comes to conservation and hunting, whether it's in Texas or in Africa or anywhere
0: else around the world. We have to have that same kind of value placed here in the States. And you and I have covered this and have documented this at length where the animal rights activists love to really tout like charismatic megafauna. One of my friends coined that excellent term, you know, grizzly bears and wolves, mm-hmm. and they place a, like a false value on them saying that they can't be managed. They can't have anything, you know, done to them to ensure that their populations are healthy and that they're also not having conflicts with people or other wildlife. And so we have to do a better job <laughs> of messaging that here. Yeah. It's, it's an exactly. uphill battle, but it, it's not impossible. And did you know that New Mexico has an oryx? I don't know if it's the same species you got in Texas, but I've heard that they exist in New Mexico and you can get them on public land. Have you heard that? Yeah, it's
1: a different species, but right. yes, it's, a, it's a, a, a kind of antelope. So, um, yeah, there's all kinds of different, you know, oryxes. This is a scimitar oryx um, and goats per, to say. Um, of course, there's the, the antelope that you can get out west, pronghorn antelope, um, which I did a couple years ago with my dad, which was awesome on horseback in Wyoming. Um, but yeah, there's obviously tons of different kinds of, of species, but, um, this one in particular was extinct in Africa and now they've rehabilitated some of the population, which is great.
0: Do you think there'll be a season three? Do you have any hopes to possibly take your Fox nation series international? <laughs> So I've
1: I've spoken with some of the people I work with about this whole international idea. And uh, I would love to go international. We've kind of backed ourselves in the corner a little bit with the name, right? Luxury Hunting Lodges of America. Um, but maybe we can adjust that and edit that a little bit. Um, I would love to do a season three. It just kind of depends on scheduling and time resource management and that kind of thing. But um, I I really love the ability to go and have a good time, obviously, work with a great crew, um, but most importantly for me is to highlight the the conservation and why hunting is a good thing for um, the environment, for the economy, for um, you know the reputation of hunters. So I, I really enjoy being able to highlight those things at these different ranches through private industry. You know, none of these ranches are government owned. Um, it's not even public land. They're all uh, private. They, some of them have public private partnerships with the state through you know hunting licenses or hunting tags, for example. Um, but they are private private. Private ranches and private property, and they're doing a lot uh, on their own without government force to uh, conserve and to manage in a very positive way these wildlife populations.
0: We do see private stakeholders, and which is why I'm going to segue more into public policy. I feel like a lot of public stakeholders or private and public stakeholders are being alienated by the administration we have. And what has kind of been on your mind in terms of public policy relating to energy and conservation that you're following closely right now? Because like me, I think you're frustrated with what's going on and you see kind of an interruption in true conservation. But what have you been following and what should be top of mind to town hall readers, to those listening to the podcast, those who watch you on Fox News? What should they be looking out for?
1: Yeah. So I think for me, the thing that's been coming up the most lately is when I've been doing this traveling, whether it's by plane or, um, driving to these remote areas across the country, you know, seeing these massive wind farms up on the ridges, right. And understanding that that energy is not an efficient way to gain energy, uh, and also takes tons of resources and, and makes the environment look horrible. Um, I think that this, this false idea of thinking that that wind energy or solar panel energy in the form that it's in now is a is a substitute for things like natural gas I mean I've been in Wyoming and I don't you don't even see the natural gas plants hardly but you do see the windmills that are you know being stood up everywhere um and you, you know that the gas is much more efficient at bringing energy to what Americans need whether it's farming or keeping homes warm uh getting goods to market etc so and you also look at you know, the amount of land it takes to set up a solar farm. Um, and so this push to move to that and the amount of environmental resources it actually takes to fulfill those quote climate change goals. I think that it's been wildly underreported what the environmental cost actually is to standing up, you know, these quote green energy sources. Um, So I think that's something that I really noticed. Also, you know, I think land access is another big one as you know, you cover very closely the Biden administration is trying to restrict even more land to, to hunters and fishers um, because they want to ban more lead based um, bullets. And they also want to ban fishing tackle on certain um, federal lands. I think that's actually absolutely atrocious. Um, And so It's a constant battle for access to your public lands. And I also think it's a battle against this false idea that wind and solar power is actually better for the environment. When you look at the amount of space it just takes up and what that means for the Earth, uh, I think that's really something that I've noticed and just seen firsthand.
0: It's interesting that the net zero agenda precludes them from having rational thought. They are fine with exploiting and potentially destroying millions upon millions of acres of Mm -hmm. productive land, whether it's for recreation or commercial uses. And then they also have the similar disdain for our oceans, despite claiming they love to protect the oceans. They're fine with industrializing it. Um, Whales potentially will be impacted by offshore wind exploration. Their government website says it. It's not me inventing it out of thin air. I'm using their resources And then they're displacing anglers and other recreationists from the water to no benefit to whales, too, with these vessel strike rules, vessel -hmm. vessel speed rules. So it seems to me, and this is my next question, do you think this administration, I'm convinced, just just reading all the rulemaking, I don't see how recreationists who fish and hunt, whether onshore or offshore, are benefiting whatsoever. I think we're losing our access. Mm -hmm. Do you tend to have that same view? Should they No, be absolutely. Yeah, I think they should be certainly more, you know,
1: I think that a lot of people see uh, hunting and fishing as just like a hobby, right? Um, and they don't want to get involved in policy or politics. But if you really appreciate, as most of us do, the ability to go out and enjoy uh, the earth and to respect wildlife and to fish and to be out in nature, you have to be involved in policy, and I think you're absolutely right that we're we're losing ground on on the, these issues, not gaining ground. Um, and once you lose that ground, it's very difficult to to get it back. You know, it's interesting that you talk about um, the the issues with the oceans and uh, the land access. You know, it's and the logic behind it. It's almost it's very similar to the way they've handled forest management, right? Right. Uh, they've been so focused on the Endangered Species Act, and you know, if there's a a spotted owl in this one tree You can't do anything around there in terms of clearing out the brush for miles and miles. But then the brush builds up, there's a fire and everything gets burned to a crisp in a way that we didn't see before the Endangered Species Act when they were allowed to go in and do better resource management and, sorry, excuse me, better forest management and cleanup. And so then everything burns. Uh, it's kind of the same process with this new, quote, clean, green, scammy energy where, you know, they say the end goal is the thing that they want to do. But in the process, they have to kill a bunch of whales or destroy a bunch of, you know, millions, like you said, millions of acres of property to build these enormous wind farms, which only last for five years. If and then they're lucky. L- if they're lucky. And then what do you do with all the trash? I mean, it just the angle of the zero emissions is a total lie anyway, just given what you have to do to make all of these things, you know, making solar panels and making wind turbines takes a lot of fossil fuels and it it takes emissions. Um, And so, you know, it's interesting to, to look at all of that, but to answer your question, yes, I think that the the Biden administration is certainly trying to cut off more access so that they can have more control uh, in what they see as keeping people conservationists out of what they think the government can do better but as we've seen with forest management and other issues they don't do better and they need private industry to help them
0: it's very important and i don't think we're going to get forest management and esa reform anytime soon i'm looking at the deliberations which i'll write uh, over the coming weeks for for town hall on my friday column but it doesn't seem like anything is budging even though the evidence is out there saying that they need to be doing this stuff but they're Mm -hmm. listening to radical preservationists And it's kind of repetitive. Radical preservationists tend to be people who incline themselves to really far-left kind of preservationist positions, and they're the ones who are behind a lot of these legal battles, um, insinuating and and starting these lawsuits and crafting rulemaking. All these rulemaking proposed rules, you know, for vessels, uh, lead ban, all come from the same groups that sue, have millions of dollars and want to kick off people off of public lands. And while they're largely those uh, who largely threaten our way of life sometimes we see it coming from our side as conservatives we see Mm -hmm. people support misguided bills like the return act when I last had you on we talked about that and I I still think I'm not only that part of the pendulum we also have some people who purport to be conservatives saying we have to make sure every or we have to tie climate into every single environmental issue and I think that's misguided as well so where can conservatives accurately and coherently message on true conservation how can they do that in your opinion
1: uh, I think what we discussed, you know, think about the bigger picture. try not to get so uh, you know with the blinders on on this issue of, quote, climate change. you know, the idea that people who have questions about the legitimacy of quote climate change science that's been pushed and debunked multiple times, they're not anti earth. they're not anti-environment. They just want to to do things in a logical fashion. So I think, looking at the process to get to the end and what that entails and comparing it to uh, maybe some other solutions is probably the best way to go. I mean, is is building millions of acres of solar and wind farms that will be defunct in five years, really the best way to impact the environment in a positive way? The answer is obviously no, if you think about it. Um, So maybe you could think about more like private innovation to, to cut down on pollution. And I think also, enforcing the idea and the fact that there's a big difference between pollution and, quote, climate change. Um, and I also think that human beings pulling back their arrogance on how the earth works would be an important thing, too. You know, we're hearing a lot about, the, we're seeing the hottest days ever recorded. Like, okay, well, since when? Like, the 1950s? Like, the, the earth has been around for a lot longer than that. And, you know, I always say I grew up in Arizona. I, it used to be under an ocean. Okay. Yeah. Like the climate changes. It's the reality of the earth. And I think having a little more humility about what humans can really do to impact it um, is probably a good step forward in terms of not doing things that inhibit human progress um, while also cleaning up the environment with pollution.
0: Conservation is conservative. I would like to see more mm-hmm. of our side champion that and not really contort and misconstrue conservation as preservation. Sometimes we see some of our uh, folks do, and um that that's a great examination into it. Is there anything else, Katie that you'd like to add for our listeners?
1: Uh, no, just go watch my series and of course, listen to Gabby's podcast and, and read her column at town hall and, uh, yeah, get out there, you know, do something good for the environment, whether it's, you know, picking up trash on the side of the road or getting involved in your local community. I know that, uh, in Arlington, Virginia, where you and I live nearby, uh, they're doing a debate now on whether they're going to cull the deer with hunters or through sterilization. So is that trying is to be serious? Yeah. Trying to get involved in that local debate. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Please. They had a meeting this week. So you're know, just paying attention to your local community. And obviously, of course, your, your federal government as well as they try to limit your ability to uh, exercise your freedoms and your hobbies of going fishing and hunting, which is a way of life, as you mentioned.
0: Well said, Katie. Thank you so much. Congrats on the success of the show. Love Thank seeing you. you every time you're on Fox. It's always fun to watch you. Uh, my videographer appreciates you sharing her song all the time. She's like, Oh my gosh, this is so wonderful. So she's <laughs> really grateful. And she, I got her to cover the conservation beat. She knows how to film that style as well. So yeah. you're doing phenomenal. I have loved, you know, knowing you for the past decade plus, and I hope we get to fish together at some point. Yes, absolutely. We both got to slow down a little bit and be in town more, but yeah, we'll make it
1: happen at some point. (laughs) Thanks, Katie. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Gabby.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content, share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.